Hola, slow Baja listeners. Thanks for tuning in this week. Um, I'm just back, as you may know, from a couple weeks in Baja, which uh, delayed my last show a bit, but I'm back at it and got some great shows lined up here. Uh, My expression of gratitude this week goes to my amigo Hayden Roberts. Uh, Maybe you've listened to the podcast with him. It's one of my favorites. Um, Anyways, Hayden runs Hello Engine. Uh, He restores 1960s British motorcycles, and Hayden brought uh, three amigos down on 60s Triumphs for a test run of what I'm calling my slow Baja vintage expedition. We covered a lot of dirt. It was pretty cold. There was some water. Um, We shared a lot of laughs and we only had a bit too much uh, tequila for Taleza. Spent the first night at the beautiful, uh, glorious horsepower ranch outside of Ensenada, and it might have been a lot of fun if we had just spent the entire three days there, but we pressed on, headed down the coast, and um, spent a night in Santo Tomas, and then we spent the last night. uh, More gratitude here to Hector Sarabia and his brother, Juan Carlos, uh, better known as J.C. Sarabia, for putting us up on Hector's La Granja Esperanza Ranch in Ojos Negros. Um, Hector's been racing Baja for over 40 years, and he won last year's Baja 1000 in Class 11. His father um, was the first promoter of dirt bike racing in Baja way, way back when, and uh, J.C. brought over some beautiful old black and white photographs of some of those early races and they were on bikes just like Hayden and the boys were riding so uh lucky J, uh, GT and uh Jorma had a good uh long look at those pics um seeing what life was like down in Baja 50 years ago in the racing scene 60 years ago in the racing scene um well, I, I want to say, you know, I've been itching to get into a class 11 and uh, Hector accommodated. He had his race uh, bug there. And while Hayden and the boys were settling into a cold cerveza and some homemade guacamole, uh, we put on our helmets and Hector took me for a lap on his sort of home test track. And uh, it was it was amazing. I tried to shoot a little video, um, but, you know, eventually I just had to put the phone down and hang on with both hands. It was uh hair-raising, eye-opening, and a hell of a lot of fun. And I hope that I have a chance to jump in for a stage at a on a future race. Um, JC Juan Carlos did show me a video of when he got out of his section of the 1000 as a navigator. He literally kissed the ground. He was that happy to be out of the car. So, uh, you know, I don't know what I'm getting myself into, but uh, I can't wait to do it. Um, today's show uh, is with my old amigo, Pete Springer. Um, Pete and I met uh, a couple of years ago when I started this uh, podcasting thing, he uh, was um, part of the two podcasts I recorded on the first day ever of podcasting, uh, Sarah Beck, A Mom's Guide to uh, Traveling Baja, and Pete Springer. Pete uh, ended up getting to air first, um, and he won the 1973 uh, his class of the 1973 Baja 1000 in a FJ40, just like mine. He had a month and 300 bucks to build the thing, and they won their class. And Pete's just got a lot of great stories. He started traveling to Baja in 1960 or so. Um, he's got great recall. He's got self-deprecating sense of humor, and I just love hearing his stories. Uh, st- listen closely, and you'll hear him talk about a turn egg omelet. Yeah, that's right. They used to just go take steel turn eggs from an island in 
make omelets for the uh, the gringo. So um, yeah, that's first I'd ever heard of it, a turn egg omelet. But Pete's got good stories, and he talks about it, and I'm glad I got to record it, and it's good to see him, 81 years old, doing great. Um, hope to get more stories out of the old timers while they're still around. So enjoy the show. I'll be back with something fun next week, and uh, here we go. Hey, this is Michael Emery. Thanks for tuning into the Slow Baja. This podcast is powered by Tequila Fortaleza, handmade in small batches and hands down my favorite tequila. Hey, I want to tell you about your new must-have accessory for your next Baja trip. Benchmark Maps has released a beautiful, beautiful Baja California Road and Recreation Atlas. It's a 72-page large format book of detailed maps and recreation guides that makes the perfect planning tool for exploring Baja. Pick yours up at benchmarkmaps.com. Just talk to me a little bit, Pete. Well, I, uh, I you know, this uh, performing on cue is kind of tough to do. I, in fact, I've been quite nervous about this podcast because <laughs> I told you all my good stories. Oh, you man. know, I'm sure there are more. Well, hopefully you can make up a few. And uh, I thought maybe I'd tell you about the finding that guy with his wheel off on one of the Baja races that I was spectating. It was down there a little bit south of, or north, I think, of Coyote Cals near Arendara, about that's 65 miles or so south of Ensenada. All right, well, before we get into that, let's just say hello. Oh. You sound great. It's damn nice to see you. Uh, it's slow Baja. It's the first week of January 2022. Happy New Year, everybody. And I have finally circled back to see my old friend and my first podcast, Pete Springer. Winner huh. of his class, in case David Keir is listening, winner of his class <laughs> in the 1973 Baja 1000. A damn nice fellow, a fabricator, builder. Um, Baja lover and Pete it's such a delight to be sitting here at your house in Oceanside we're sitting outside COVID hasn't killed either one of us yet and uh, it's just darn nice to see you so it's a a beautiful day to sit here isn't it Mike it is it is a beautiful day here and it's good to see you again so uh, you're 80 81 now 81 I talked to you I think when you were 79 79 yeah you don't look a day past that for sure (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, time travels. We we just didn't know any better when uh, I was starting this podcast deal and I came down to see you. Um, we sat in my uh, Forerunner. I think I sat in the front seat and you sat in the back seat so we'd have a little space oh, between us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was... Uh, the window's up so we'd get good sound. We met at a bar, but it was too noisy yes. in the bar to have a podcast. Noisy. so we very went, noisy. Went... Uh, out and and it was, this has turned out to be a good thing. The uh, what you're doing with all the podcasts of personalities of Baja. Well, I'm I'm trying to save some of the stories from some of the adventurous folk like yourself who went and did fun things. And uh, you're, you know, I don't know if you thought you were doing the moonshot in those days, but I kind of think of it as the same thing. You just hot rodded stuff and tried it out and. Some one, stuff worked and some stuff didn't. One of the things about getting in on the ground floor of Baja racing was that there was no 
performance suspensions that were already figured out. Every car had a different problem. And you didn't go to a hot rod house and there were 15 different solutions for the problem. Your problem was going to be solved in your shop. Uh, and, you know, I was of the idea that lighter is better. And, uh, and I went with a single seat uh, dune buggy, and, but never in my wildest dreams did I think a 5,000 pound trophy truck would end up being the fastest thing in the off-road. You know, I just uh, I just saw the the 1,000, the Baja 1,000 in November, and uh, I was close enough to a trophy truck who took an inside lane when we thought it was going to take a different lane, and it, it turned out to be the winning uh, the winning truck, Rob McCachern, and and Pete, I could have reached out and touched that thing, and it was doing 100 miles an hour, and it's absolutely hair raising. I I liken it to when the Blue Angels fly over and you feel that, when you viscerally feel that amount of mass and speed going by. And noise. And noise and skill. <laughs> I mean, that that driver put that truck six inches off of a tripod leg of the videographer that was standing in front of me. Can you imagine being on those motorcycles that are getting passed by those guys in the same two ruts and you can't get off the road when your motorcycle because you're in a rut sponsored by pampers and he can only get and he's wide oh my god <laughs> well we've jumped right into it i got caught one time with my street bike down there on a on the uh Oh, the trail that goes from Highway 1 up to Via Trinidad. And it was on a, a high section of one-lane road where it would build up about three feet off the, off the surround. And that was only wide enough for one vehicle. And I'm up here on this thing as far to the right as I can be. I can't put my right foot down because there's no, the, it's off the bank. So I'm just about, I can't lean to the left because that takes too much room. And here's coming a, a trophy truck pre-runner roaring from behind. And I hear him coming. And how he missed me, I don't, I don't know. But it was, a, it was a, a minute of horror in my <laughs> in my life and that, you know that's what Baja is yeah a minute of horror <laughs> to minute of horror <laughs> so you know uh, we're just going to have a ram rambling conversation Pete and I'm just again I'm going to say it and I'm delighted to be here um, so folks if you're not up for rambling uh, reminiscences where Pete reaches back 60 years of Baja travel but I was just in the Nora 500 driving in my 1971 Land Cruiser slow Baja in the new slow Baja safari class and we somehow got kind of mixed up with a um, I don't know mismatch mishmash of race vehicles so you say hey it's Nora that you know it's not they're not racing they're racing 
<laughs> they're really racing. And when you're on one of these one-lane roads, dirt roads, looking, you know, 100 yards ahead, 200 yards ahead, 300 yards ahead for a little place that you can pull out because you can hear the thing coming. You can't see it, but you can see maybe a dust trail over the mountain or this, and you hear this, you know, engine at full roar yeah, coming two, to you. two miles away. And you know that they're going to be around that turn and on your ass <laughs> and you're going to be a huge surprise to them and so it was hair raising and and ted my navigator said to me dude do you hear that truck do you hear that truck i'm like i think you're playing with me because i'm looking in my rearview mirror i don't see a thing and he said do you hear it so i shut my engine off to like just get to the silence <laughs> and we heard it <laughs> then you're starting the thing up you know it's kind of dumb to start to shut the engine off but we wanted the silence to hear and then you know we're we're literally flooring it and kind of launching off the side of the road into some rubble just to make a spot where this it turned out to be a uh, class 10 just to get by us you know but that was a and he was hard charging you know and didn't expect to see me for sure yeah that's uh yeah when you go down to watch a baja race or anything or you're in the baja race or you're pre-running the baja race it is a hazard it is a big hazard possibility so let's uh refresh a little bit here um obviously you're aware you're you're you'd relocated from ohio as a kid you were living in southern california you spent some time in the service and you're working for your dad's uh shop working on cars and you're doing some welding and fabrication 67 the first race comes up you i think went to the 68 race am i right 69 to watch to spectate yeah yeah, I went down to San Inez at, uh, I always have trouble with Catavina. Catavina, beautiful and, space, and, beautiful uh, place. Yeah, Catavina was almost a nothing place, and, and the the big deal down there was uh, Josefina de Suñinga's Rancho San Inez. I mean, that's where everybody went. They had gas. Uh and they had an airport, but Catavina didn't have anything. So, I mean, do you recall what you drove down in those days? Oh yeah, it was a '66 Chevy pickup truck, two-wheel drive, and I'd put, I'd widen the wheels because I was getting into widening rims and making roll bars. So I'd widened four eight-hole split rims of the day those were the heavy duty truck rims well those all required inner tubes because they were two-piece rims and then you get into baja and you, because of the dune buggy experience it rides so much better with light air pressure but tubes won't last with light air pressure you'll just work holes in them you don't you know they just yeah, so what, what you're wrinkle, 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 and pretty soon there's a hole. What you're saying to translate light air pressure, you're aired down. Yeah. So you're running a low pressure, 20 yeah. pounds, 15 yeah, pounds? 15, you, probably. Yeah, 15. Because so the truck was light. Yeah. Uh, and the tires were big. And uh, So you've got a chance then you're going you're gonna to burst a, a uh, tube. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> there's so much to know. Yeah, and so the first flat was just a flat that uh you're good just was just a flat tire that i took apart and patched the tube and put it back together but within 
10 or 15 miles, I had another flat. It was like they had lasted the 50 or 60 miles, and now we were going to start having flats. I mean, there were probably 100 places that were beginning to be a flat in that inner tube. And finally, we, we did, or somebody told us that you just have to run more air pressure. You can't run tubes with low air pressure in something that's heavy. You could in a dune buggy, but your dune buggy only went 15, 20 miles on a weekend, you know. So, so well, you know, we were doing well from Ensenada to, uh, that's 250 miles to uh, Rancho Santa Anu. And, and, and how much of that was had some pavement or pass, well, passable 80. dirt? There was 80 miles south of Ensenada that had uh, paved. So the rest of it was dirt. And uh, so we had flats all weekend. <laughs> And uh, that was also the the race where a couple of guys came in uh, driving a, a Wampus Kitty, which is just a VW buggy. Uh, and they came in in a, in a Jeep station wagon that with some Mexicans. Their car had lost its steering box somewhere between El Rosario and and uh, Rancho San Inez, and they didn't know just where. You know, it was two hours ago or three hours ago, depending on how much, anyway. But they didn't know how many miles that was. And uh, so I offered to go pick up their race car for them in my uh, pickup. We'd put it in the back of the pickup. So we ended up, my wife and I, and we took the two guys with us, or at least we took one. Maybe we had all four of us in the front seat to go out and we'd look for this pickup truck or this wampus kitty, and we never did find it that night. I'd, I'd filled up with gas at San Inez, and we drove half a tank of gas out in my pickup truck and never found the, his car. And as far as I know, it was the first dune buggy that was ever stolen in Mexico. But that's uh, that's not unheard of at all. If you abandon a race car down there and the Mexicans come along, they, you know, one out of a hundred will probably get stolen. Well, I just did a podcast on that with the Baja 500. A guy, uh, you know, first time racing, built a built a uh, class 11 in his garage covid project brought it out from florida and his first time in baja you know lifelong dream mike i hope you're listening and uh his, the the race team's idiot racing and i just love it but you know they had a lot of problems and the last problem you know basically his team let him down and left him and he had to figure out how to get the car and you know didn't leave the guy in the car and go back with to get the truck the this the that what have you they came back for the they came back for their class 11 and it was gone. Yeah. <laughs> and the the amazing part of the story was how the community of folks rallied to find that car and get to get him reunited with his his baby. And the funny not funny the Mexican community the Mexican community rallied. And you know, they did find the car and just a couple of inexpensive things had been stolen off of it, you know, some Harbor Freight lights or something, nothing, nothing of substance. Uh-huh. But he got it back, and his 
his take on it first timer you know like it's the one bad apple but the barrel uh, got spoiled the 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 truckload of great apples that came along to yeah. help him out mm-hmm. was the amazing part of it mm-hmm. so you're we're, we're bouncing around we're gonna bounce around bear with us folks uh pete you're on to that first trip you can't find the guy's buggy but you say to yourself i think i can do this oh yeah yeah i've been to baja before i said to myself you traveled you know, there with your dad? I traveled with my dad, and we'd been down to L.A. Bay, and that's as far as we'd, we'd gone, and that only one trip. And although some lesser trips, but it's kind of, I felt comfortable in Baja. And I thought, well, this will be easy. <laughs> this will be uh, easy. Build, build your own car and race it. Yeah, and I mean, the, the trucks that I had been to Baja in, where in my dad's 1941-ton Dodge. That's 1940, folks, 4-0. In, with, a, with what was the problem, Pete? In 1960, and, and it had a, a coil that would, <laughs> that would be faulty if it really needed all the power it had. It would just fall on its face. Well, we got down and we got back, but the real point is, even in my 66 Chevrolet pickup truck, 10 miles an hour was a good average on those kind of roads. And now here I'm thinking that I'm going to build a race car. Although I had some dune buggy experience, so I knew a little about uh, driving on dirt roads. But... uh, (laughs) I didn't come from a mechanical family or, you know, the racing was not in any part of my upbringing, you know, no motorcycle racing, no. So, you know, if you come out of that, a racing environment, you have such a, (laughs) such a much, much better idea. I mean, I didn't even know how to keep a nut or a bolt tight. You know, you tighten them up, maybe you missed a few. You know, all that was possible in my first several years of racing. You, you know, to actually go, because you don't drive, drive your race cars around very much. There's no, it's too hard on them to test them. So, you know, if you if you test it for 10 miles somewhere, you you made a pretty good test. Yeah, I like this. Yeah, yeah, I like this. But, you know, you really haven't tested any longevity of any of your ideas and i would guess at the at the level that you're building as you're learning as you go and uh, absolutely i'm learning how to weld as i go <laughs> <laughs> so you're learning as you go on every aspect but you're also working full time and you're you're building this thing uh after hours weekends what have you so i would imagine that there is very very little spare time you know, to test and and try this or try that or figure this, uh, you know, between right. budget. Testing was 100 miles away out to the desert. Yeah. So, you know, you, yeah, we didn't test very much. Uh, the car probably wasn't even running, you know, until two weeks before the race. So, uh, Can you and set- then maybe you had a, a weekend that you needed to go and pre-run. Well, you got some something else ready to go pre-run you didn't pre-run in the race car and uh, 
you know, you might may, might have a weekend you could get out to Ocotillo Wells and try some things. But, you know, you were running out of money. You didn't have money for, even for gas to get out to those places. You know, we <laughs> if we had $100 in our pocket when we went to Baja to do the race, uh, in the in the early days, gasoline was covered by the race organization for the race car. But uh, I mean, we were really we were really stretching things to uh, even make it to the starting line. You said uh, I think in our last conversation you were sleeping in the back of your truck. Oh yeah, in there town. Was, there was no hotel in the budget. You said <laughs> you said it, and I still laugh. We were low budget people. <laughs> We were low-budget people making $2.50 an hour. And as you say, you weren't worth much more than that anyway. And I wasn't worth any more. <laughs> well, set the scene. T- take me to that first race. 1969, you, you 19, went as a spectator. Right. 1970, you're, you're, you're a racer now. So probably two months after that race, we started building... Uh, a race car. This, we're building our first, my first uh, steel uh, tubing race frame. I had raced a Corvair tunnel buggy once before and found out that wasn't strong enough. A tunnel can't race off-road. So that gave me an idea that I really needed a substantial tubing frame with a roll cage, upper and lower bars and ladder stiffeners you know i'd seen that from other buggies that you can see so i started i started the build and i had a uh i had a partner in the beginning but in a month or so he decided that no that was a bad idea he bailed out of the project so then it was all on me and i worked three hours at least after work every night and at least eight hours on a weekend, if not two eight-hour days on Saturday and Sunday, getting ready, pre-running, testing whenever. But, I mean, this this buggy didn't get ready till maybe 30 days before the race. Then I remember we took it out and, and ran it some. I don't remember where, but it was beginning to, uh, you have it in third or fourth gear, it would it would creep. Like the clutch was, you couldn't, I mean, with the clutch in, it would creep. So it turned out that a couple of what happens to a VW transmission, if you got a little extra horsepower, and we had an 1800 instead of a 1600, um, a couple of gears in there will start to spin on their press fit and they'll separate a little bit and that'll take care out some of the clearance and you have gears rubbing. They're not engaged, they're just rubbing each other. Well, I mean, we're a month before the race or three weeks before the race and I don't know what's anything about VW transmission. You know, I just bought a stock transmission and put it in. But one of my, one of my buddies uh, worked at a foreign car, a German foreign car, and he had a, there was one mechanic there that 
drag race VWs. And he told me about, he said, you got to take those gear sets out and weld them together. Oh, so, you know, that takes 10 days or so of getting a transmission apart when you don't know anything about it. <laughs> and, and welding the thing back together. And, you know, and of course those 10 days were completely, uh, that was extra work. That wasn't scheduled. You know, you you were already hard pressed for getting ready for the starting line. And here somebody comes in and says, you got to spend 10 days of your after work and weekends uh, remedying this transmission problem. So those are the kind of things that budget <laughs> out the window budget people have to have to go through and that's why many of them don't finish and that's why it's it's hard to win one of these races but we did we got it back together and uh, and made the race i remember somewhere uh, in my design i had a swing axle uh vw and they have a very piss poor differential joint at the transmission for the axles. They have something that's called fulcrum plates and spades on the axle end. And these, if you, I had designed this buggy to, for maximum travel uh, in the rear. The wheels would go all the way, and I, I wanted to be able to hit a bump and have most of my travel wheel going up before it hit stops. Well, that was too much down, and that that uh, those Falcon plates caused too much heat doing that much universaling. And about 15 miles out of Ensenada, the car started jumping. Uh, what the hell is... And this is the first time I've been at high speed with this car because we're on the pavement and there's no traffic. Back in those days, there was not all of Ensenada out there. It was open highway. So we're doing 80 miles an hour or so, and this car starts jumping in the rear. What the hell is causing that? And so I slowed down trying to figure out what it was and and then the jumping went away so the slowing down allowed the grease to get back into the places but Jesus those falcon plates and axle ends were chewed up bad uh. <laughs> well where did it end in 1970 for you I'm well so after that incident uh, we we continued on and got to the dirt road and once you got to the dirt road then then you were going slow and there were more trouble with that and we went on and on and on and on we made the halfway point at at el arco and i i got out of the car and my race partner got in and he made it all the way past santa uh san ignacio that's 600 miles and uh we decided to go the inland route down there. Uh, it's either the inland route or you go out on the mud flats south of San, Ign San yeah, Ignacio. Down to San Juanico. And, uh, but the inland route was a lot rougher. And apparently 
where I had welded my frame onto the front beam of the Volkswagen had been getting beat up pretty badly. And about 40 miles out of San Ignacio, the whole front beam fell off the car. <laughs> and we were, apparently it didn't fall completely off it. It probably broke one beam loose and twisted and it was obvious that the race was over, I think. My co-driver was able to limp into a Sears pit uh, pit point out there, so he went out all that there by himself. But he was he was done. Then we had to, uh, my my race partner had an airplane, which was that El Arco. So we were going to get in the airplane, and he had a uh, he bought a pilot, had a pilot with him. So we were going to fly into into La Paz and pick up our winnings. <laughs> but unbeknownst to us, we uh, we weren't going to win. <laughs> so as we went down, well, the first thing happened is we flew over. We didn't have enough gas to get to La Paz, so we had to go over to Mulahay and gas up. Well, Mulahay didn't have any gas. We had uh, 12 three over theoretical minutes of fuel left when we got into uh, Mulahay. But they said that just across the bay over at Punta Chivato, which is uh, 15 miles, something like that, uh, they have gas over over there. It was uh, Punta Chivato is a fairly new uh, hotel uh, tourist joint. So we we took off and we made it to Punta Chivato, got gas, then we headed on south, and we stopped at uh, La Parisima, because there was an airport there, that, and there was also a checkpoint, and we wanted to make sure that Tom had gotten through there, my co-driver. Well, he hadn't So there's no communications, folks. No, That's no. what. That's the other part of this. Yeah. You're now looking Right, if you have your, trouble, your... you got what's known as stuck stubs, and you got a little notepad and a pencil, and you're supposed to write your problem down on your notepad and give it to a passing racer. And he'll hand it in at the next checkpoint. Well, that's still no information. I mean, the next checkpoint doesn't have any communication. So, uh, at but least, at least they know somebody is stuck somewhere behind. Right, and if somebody were to go there and ask them, yeah, they'd hand, hand you the information. But it isn't like you're going to call and find out where your car is in anything under a week. <laughs> so anyway, we found out that he wasn't there. There weren't any stuck stubs. So we flew backwards along the course, and we knew we knew that he was with a, he had pre-planned to take the inland route. So we followed the inland route at about 200 feet of altitude, and we we saw the car, and we got the hand signaled across the throat <laughs> that meant uh, we're done or there's no help or, you know, you got to go get, you somehow you got to come get me. So we flew back to San Ignacio and I hired, um, my wife was with me, we hired a, uh, a, a, a box of, 
five-ton box van. As I recall, we made a deal with the uh, with a driver, hundred bucks. He'd go out to La Coranda and get us. Now, and we'd go out there with him, and uh, so we did that. And it, it took five hours to go that forty miles in that box van. Anyway, it took a round trip of ten hours to get him back to. Um, back to uh, San Ignacio, and then, then my wife and and a co-driver they flew off, went home to California, and they left me there to get the car fixed and drive it home. So Which, no chase vehicle, no chase trucks. Oh, yeah, you, you just right. We had a chase airplane. <laughs> which might have been seemed pretty high tech yeah i mean we were feeling pretty good having the airplane but you know it, there was there were we had we didn't have a wrench <laughs> to fix something <laughs> hey pete we're going to take a break right there i'm going to deliver a message for my good friends at baja bound and uh tell folks how they can join me on the nora 1000 and we'll be right back Hey, do you wish you had joined us on the Nora 500? Well, here's your chance. It's double the mileage, double the fun, double the parties, double the dirt. It is the Nora Mexican 1000. We're going to drive by day. We're going to party by night. I'm pouring Fortaleza tequila. April 30th through May 6th, 2022, we're driving the entire peninsula. You don't want to miss out on this one. Again, if I can do it in my 1971 Toyota Land Cruiser, totally stock, you can do it in any modern 4x4. The Nora Mexican 1000 is the happiest race on earth. Check it out at Nora.com, N-O-R-R-A.com, or on Slow Baja. Here at Slow Baja, we can't wait to drive our old Land Cruiser south of the border. When we go, we'll be going with Baja Bound Insurance. Their website's fast and easy to use. Check them out at BajaBound.com. That's BajaBound.com, serving Mexico travelers since 1994. Hey, well, uh, I'm back here with uh, the amazing Pete Springer just talking about crazy stories from Baja racing in the early days with no communications and no chase vehicles and no pre-running and no nothing. Stuck stubs, baby. Stuck stubs. I saw one. I was with uh, Eliseo Garcia, and he was showing me the uh, entry kit for the 1970. You had a little uh, Spanish handbook, courtesy of Brian Chichua's uh, Jeep dealership, and you had a stuck stub, and you had a, you know, whatever the sign you were supposed to show the other guys if uh, if you were having trouble as they raced by you. Was there a sense if you saw a broken down vehicle and your your vehicle was in good shape and racing? That you would stop for a second and find out what's going on? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that was pretty standard back then. So that's just par for the course, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, I mean, if they were on their lid, I mean, you'd see if you could help the people. Right. Uh, but if there was, you needed 30, sec- 30 minutes to fix something, you wasn't going to do that. Yeah. You would, you'd say, hey, good luck, find somebody. Well, maybe in the slower classes that were going to be, two days getting to La Paz, they might have given you more time. But we I was going to win it. <laughs> ignorance is bliss, isn't it, Pete? <laughs> Youth and ignorance. You're going to win your first one out there. Hell I love yeah. it. In Hell your home. Yes. Wow. And I mean, I was thinking back, I was so far from even being competitive 
Although, I got to admit, my car may have been the fastest car in the race in those days, in the first days, because it was... It was the first uh, first car that was that light, had big tires all the way around. We're going to wait for a second here. Got some neighbors passing by. So, Pete, you were saying that your car could have been the fastest. You, it might you, have been you may have been the most ignorant builder <laughs> racer, but your vehicle, you may have actually constructed the fastest vehicle because of its, uh, its lightweight. I might have. You're revolutionary. I remember Innovator. Uh, at one time I passed Johnny Johnson in the early part of the race, and uh, Johnny Johnson was one of the premier racers of, of that day. And uh, Let me interject here. I think Lynn Chenwith said he won 112 races, if I'm not mistaken. I'm, I'm remembering from six, eight months like ago. That seems like an awful big number, but he may have. He really was probably the smartest I mean he was he was a good businessman you know he promoted himself well uh, and he he was just good at, at everything it took to be an off-road racer good enough to have George Plimpton jump in his car and race with him and do yeah. a, do a, a yeah. documentary I mean, special on it so and God knows what Plimpton cha- paid for that opportunity well he went right from sitting with jackie stewart in monaco to uh to johnny johnson in la mesa or el cajon or where the heck he lived talking to he and his wife in the garage and then pretty soon he's in the race car with him in baja it's a a beautiful film yeah uh at the at the wheel uh i think it's at the wheel with george plimpton you can find it on youtube yeah i watched that last month when it hit the internet here recently Uh, i hadn't heard seen that before and uh but right after I passed Johnny Johnson, because I was running, like I said, big tires all the way around, and, and I could get away with five pounds of air pressure, which gave me another six inches of wheel travel. Yeah, suspension. Suspension. But about five miles after I passed Johnson, I pushed one of those five-pound rim or tires off the rim, <laughs> had a flat and had to fix it. And so I was looking good there for a second, but then it went away. <laughs> but if I hadn't tried so hard, if I'd have been a little smarter and driven slower the whole whole way, the front end wouldn't have fallen off. We probably would have run the race. It's the tortoise and the hare, right? Exactly. It goes all the way back to Aesop. Oh, exactly. The ancient fable. But, you know, Malcolm Smith said the same thing. It took him a long time to figure out how to just slow down so he could win. <laughs> Parnelli Jones. Let's just get on to that. Yeah. He's a guy who liked to go so hard it broke or he rolled or what have you, and it took him a bit to uh, figure out how to just, just go slow enough to win. <laughs> slow enough to win. Well, let's get on to one of the things that has stuck with me since we first spoke. Luck beats good. That's going to be on a T-shirt someday, attributed to you. Slow Baja, the luck beats good. Maybe I'll put it on my next bumper sticker. I tell you, the, uh, that, uh, I mean, I, you know, with my airplane incidents and running out of gas down there and just... I've got a, you know, rolling a sports car out in the mountains behind 
San Diego and the car going down in the ditch uh, and it dropping us, the driver and myself, out the top of the sports car into some brush. You know, not a scratch on us. I mean, luck beats good is, is uh, it's not just a smart alecky remark from me. It's a big portion of my mind. <laughs> words to live by. Words, words you did get to live by. Yeah. I mean, I took, I took a lot of chances. Uh, and, I, you know, no guts, no air metal. But, uh, you know, not everybody survives them to be 80 years old. Yeah, so do you want to talk about racing through San Felipe and a motorcycle with no headlights because you just wanted to get there <laughs> when you're going to retrieve your dad's 1940, <laughs> your dad's 1940 yeah, we, Dodge one-ton flatbed? You Let's set yeah, that, we'd, set we'd that ridden, scene for me. Ridden this, my dad and I and a couple others had driven up 1940 Dodge one-ton flatbed down to L.A. Bay, and the idea was to leave it there. My dad was a good friend with Ontario Diaz, the major domo down there, and he would watch it for us. And then we'd fly in with the local charter guy who'd run airplanes. Uh, Francisco Munoz, French. the famed. There's a couple big names you just dropped there, Ontario Diaz. Yeah, and... Yeah. Uh, and Francisco so Munoz. We'd fly back in, and, and then we'd take the truck another couple hundred miles down into Baja and fly out. And anyway, we'd do the complete Baja experience over over time. So it, that never, after we got to L.A. Bay and left it there, it, it, I don't know. It, it just never panned out to go back again and do some more trips. So we got to wondering about, well, we ought to go down there and get that thing. So, um, can you can you can you give me the approximate value of that truck in oh, that day? And what are we talking? Early sixties here, sixty two, yeah, three, sixty, nineteen sixty. So yeah. you've got a twenty year old one ton truck that, remember, folks, it has a little bit of a engine issue that Pete will bring on a little <laughs> later into the conversation. <laughs> yeah, it was. We probably bought it for three hundred bucks, and. And uh, one of the guys that went down on that trip was uh, an engineer, and he he brought it up to snuff as far as radiator and cooling and new belts. And they put six, two, or it used just four tires, but it had two good spares and, I mean, all new rubber. And they, they got it really ready to go. And at that point, then it was probably worth $1,000. So not insignificant, not something you're just going to leave sitting in Bihadeo, Los Well, it was Angeles. worth something. And, you know, and going down to get it was partially invent, uh, adventure. Sure. Uh, it wasn't all about bringing the truck back. Doesn't take much to get me to go to Baja, folks. So I'm, I'm drinking in the bar one day with some boys, and I said, let's go get that truck. And I'm talking to guys that are, are dirt bikers. They're running the hare and hound 50-mile races out Nocotilla Wells. And one of them says, yeah, that sounds good. And then they took my word for it that I knew my way around Baja because <laughs> they hadn't been to Baja. And uh, other, than the, uh, the, other than the Takati race that used to happen every year, that's as far as they got to Baja. So 
okay, fast forward another month or two, and, and I've got a 500cc Vela set dirt bike. I, I probably never started out to be a dirt bike, but all the lights and everything got taken off and before I got it. And, uh, and so that's what I've got to go down. No lights, no brake lights, no, no nothing. But you don't need that stuff, especially in those years in Baja. And, uh, and, and the one guy that went with me, Stretch Helmerson, had a Jawa that he'd, a 250 Jawa. So we, my wife took us down to Tijuana in our pickup truck and we, we took off from there. And before we got to Ensenada, one of the nuts and bolts that I neglected to get tight came loose off the rear torque arm and I come screeching to a halt as the brake shoes all wadded up inside the rear drum. So, I mean, we're 30 miles out of Ensenada, or Tijuana. And so we took all the brake shoes out of the rear drum and said, okay, you got a front brake. And we went on. And so then we went through, through Ensenada and uh, down around Santa Tomas somewhere. I hear a horrible squirreling. So I shut it off. And turns out that the oil line had broken that goes from the oil tank to the uh, goes from the oil tank to the engine, and so. But old boat motorcycles had roller bearings, and that probably saved the the engine. So we cut a piece of the hose off and stuffed it back on, and we both had a spare quart of oil, so that was plenty of oil. We go down to San Vicente and stop for gas. And then when we've gassed up, we find out that <laughs> I got a gas tank leak in the, where the gas tank goes over the hump right down at my crotch. So we, we went and we found a, a mechanico and he had oxyacetylene. And we were able to he wasn't there, but we, the 10-year-old kid was there, showed us how to turn the oxyacetylene on. And the acetylene was carbide powder that you put a little water in and it produces acetylene gas. Well, we didn't know anything about that, but the 10-year-old kid got us going. And damn if we didn't get that fixed. <laughs> so, I mean, we're, that's 100 miles from Tijuana. We've had... Three major catastrophes. Capital and, A adventure already, uh, folks. <laughs> anyway, we ended up getting to, to uh, oh, near L.A. Bay that night. We were driving I think, a total of 13 hours that day. But we hit the turnoff to L.A. Bay, and it's like 45 miles to L.A. Bay. We got an hour before it's going to be pitch black. And we're thinking, and, you know, bad dirt road, like all the rest of them. We're thinking we can make it there for a motel room tonight. <laughs> so, so as we, you know, that means we gotta be doing 45 miles an hour or something like that if we're gonna make it. And, and you can't do 45 miles an hour in an old motorcycle. I mean, especially if you're not a good motorcycle rider. 
in the dark. <laughs> yeah. On a uh, on a lousy road in Baja. And and so the as we started running and watching our watch and watching the sun go down and we we better go faster, so we're starting to go faster. <laughs> you know, and as it's getting darker it's perfect solution. We're well the only solution to this is to go even faster yet. So sometime about five miles before we got to LA Bay, uh, the road did a, a left-hand jog and a right-hand jog all in about 30 feet. And I didn't make that first left-hand jog and I went off the road and I hit a boulder. Yeah, I'm probably only doing 10 or 15 miles an hour by this time. I'm Finally, I see the problem. Over the handlebars I go. Handlebars are all bent up. And that, that was it. We, we, we gave up. We gave in. We spent the night right there. <laughs> and did, did you have sleeping bags with you and some preparations, or were you just, just jackets on in the dirt? Pete trying to see that picture you in his know, mind. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I know we had a, a couple of cans of fruit. It was, only, it was only 60 years ago, Pete. Come on. Yeah. I... Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think we had a sleeping bag. We might have had a blanket. Had a couple of cans of fruit. I don't remember we having stuff that kept falling off the bike, which would be most likely the case if we had that stuff. <laughs> so, so well. yeah. Anyway, we went on into in the L.A. bag the next morning. Oh, and I had lost four of the five or five of the six lug nuts that hold my rear tire onto the bike hub. And I noticed that about in Lake Chapala somewhere. So we'd done the last 80 miles with one lug nut and we would stop about every three or four miles and tighten that lug nut because it would be working its way loose. And then after we'd do that for four or five times, uh. we'd say that lug stud is probably getting tired because it was a nut on a stud so we'd switch studs to one of the we'll other let it wear studs another one out and wear another one out and we did that all the way into la bay then once we got into la bay we had those that wheel welded on to the studs that's a solution a, and then we and we loaded them up on the on the truck we had to find a battery and a fan belt that had been borrowed to use somewhere else, sure. which is normal. I mean, if, yeah. It, that's anyway. And, Any means necessary. And then there was a, a Mexican mechanic who'd been down there working on Antero's Augustine One or Augustine Two, uh, his his personal working boat uh, on the diesel engine. And he wanted to get back to San Felipe. So he talked us into going to San Felipe because that would, was an easier route than going to Ensenada. And for the most part, it was, except for the three sisters south of Puertocitas. Can you describe those a little bit? Uh, the three sisters were, were 18 miles of mountain that just went right down into the Sea of Cortez, starting right after Puerto Cetas and going for 18 miles. There were three major climbs, 
and one was the worst. And these these roads were just there wasn't an ounce of dirt on these roads. These were these were just blasted out of the rocks. And and a, a typical rock road like that, you'll be you know you can you can granny grind. You got good traction up and over these rock ledges, but if you don't have a low granny gear, you're going to be slipping your clutch till. Anyway, you, there would be one inch ledges or one foot tall ledges that you'd have to just crawl over. <laughs> and by this, by the time we got to these mountains. We had retied our motorcycles onto our stake beds 25 times. <laughs> and that's, uh, that was probably, uh, yeah, we're 125 miles from LA Bay. <laughs> and one of these, one of these damn, oh, that problem we were having in the truck, uh, if you'd get down real slow and really hard pull on the engine, it was just the spark would start jumping to, to ground right out of the coil. Maximum load when you needed the most, you know, it yeah, gave you the least. Gave, and uh, and and this one, one of the three sisters, did that to us, and we made two runs at that damn thing. Uh, trying to get a little speed at the bottom. And this is a three-speed standard transmission, column shift of all things. <laughs> and, uh, and, and boy, you'd get up there and, and you'd get, you know, maybe only halfway up and this thing would lose its power. And back down the middle of the night, it was, it was dark, about 10, 10 a.m. as I remember, or p.m. as I remember. Wind was blowing, no moon, dim flashlight backing down these holes. We, we ran two runs and didn't make it, and finally decided we had to unload the bikes. And of course, the two guys, my partner and the Mexican, they just walk up the hill. But that third run and empty, we made it up up the hill, and, uh, <laughs> and we got the bikes back on there and loaded them up. And I mean, we're we're tired. It's it's been 20 hours already. I can remember one time the Mexican hollered in from the, in the he'd been riding in the back, asked what time it was. Ks la hora. And so I tried to answer him in Spanish, and I was told him it was son las once, or es la once, son las dos. I got confused about how to say that. <laughs> and my, my buddy Jim Halmerson says, just tell him in English he speaks better English than you do Spanish. <laughs> but I mean, and it was, I mean, it just shows you how the stressful time makes people at each other's throats. <laughs> I mean, I can laugh at it now, but at the time it really hurt my feelings. And, uh, and uh, 
it was one of the incidences that after the sun came up in San Felipe and we we drove on home that once we crossed the <laughs> the U.S. border, we both looked at each other and we said, I ain't ever going to Baja again. <laughs> and we had said, I had said that before, and I probably said that for the next 10 trips to Baja. Every time I got out of Baja, I, was, I felt like I'd escaped. <laughs> so, well, I, I, you know, I never, I never quit going back. It would take about six months and you'd start telling the story and a smile would come to your face and you'd be thinking about what a good time it was on those three three sisters. <laughs> it's funny how the mind plays tricks on you, isn't it, Pete? It really is. Uh, well, we've been at it nearly an hour here. Um, I've enjoyed it immensely. You haven't even told me about uh, landing a plane in the road or uh, <laughs> winning the, the your class in the 73 no, uh, Baja that you... Well, we uh, covered that last time, didn't we? We sure did. And I was just going to say, you got you got another story hanging in there? Well, there's a story where... <laughs> I know I gave you a week this time to think about things before yeah, I showed up. And I went through back... I went into you did my, your uh, my blogs that I've written... You know, I've got 75 stories that I've written on blog. Lots of them are motorcycle rides in the States and going to Alaska. And, but there's a, 10 of them that are Baja stories. One of the Baja stories, a short one, is is Lake Chapala in the early days was just a dust bowl. I mean, it was... it In, in the people's minds that had driven through it, it was a bigger dust bowl than anything you'd ever seen. But thinking back about it, on the way to Vegas at Prim, that's a much bigger dry lake out there. But Lake Chapala was a was a, a on the north side was just a caliche bed, and that thing would would would. It went for two or three miles of of leading into the lake of a a wash area, and the and the trucks, the traffic had made a dust bed out of that you know, seventy five yard wide. Uh, it was complete. You know, there were probably twenty five routes, um, trails, and they, you know everybody was looking for one that wasn't so dusty. So they all became dusty. And dusty meant, you know, a foot of dust, a foot of that poof. Choking dust. silt. Silt. So, so we were, you know, it was a big deal uh, getting through Lake Chapala because if dust got in your distributor, and we all ran distributors in those days, uh, if a little dust would get between your points, they would arc, they wouldn't. Points are supposed to arc once when they touch and once when they separate. But if you get dust in there, they they arc for seconds. You know, and, and they'll, you can go into a dust bowl and not come out the other side if, if you get dust in your points. So anyway, it, it caused a lot of trouble. 
Well, of course, you can't see in the dust either. And this poof dust would poof out in front of you, and then you'd drive through your own dust at five, ten miles an hour. <laughs> well, I wore glasses, and nobody made goggles to go over glasses that would seal the dust out of your face. So, you know, this is one of those items that you're having to figure out how to do. But no, I mean, in the beginning, you weren't in traffic very often, or you weren't really racing, like the 67 race and things like that. Uh, you got to a dust bowl, well, you slowed down. I mean, you... But once racing got to being a little faster, you weren't doing any slowing down if you didn't have to. So dust was billowing out in front of you, and it was becoming more of a problem. So I decided that I found out that I had to have glasses and that I could get oxyacetylene welder's goggles. And you could get prescription lenses for those for about 10 bucks, plus the 3 or $4 for the goggles. Well, hey, that was the thing. Well, they're, they're hard plastic where they go up over your nose and uh, they don't fit your nose real well. So there's air leaking in there. Well, I attempted to reshape that a little better until I thought, yeah, that's pretty good. You know, that's good enough. Well, once I got on the road, I found out I was getting air into my eye and I, I wasn't able to... Uh, uh, it was causing me to uh, to tear up a little bit. Now, that wasn't really a problem. I just was tearing up. That was something that I noticed. Well, when I got to that dust bowl, that dust went right in whatever that goddamn hole was and just blinded me. I mean, it was like somebody threw a, threw a bucket of dust in your face <laughs> with your eyes open. <laughs> And I mean, I couldn't do a thing until, and I couldn't take the goggles off. I couldn't clean my eyes out with my hands. I couldn't, the only thing I could do is tear and blink my eyes until I could see. But I still had dust in my eyes, but now I can see. <laughs> and then the next 50 feet, another batch of dust goes in there and blinds you again. Oh, I, I still don't know how all I can remember is that was the longest, longest half an hour that I ever spent in a race car trying to get that two miles into the center of Lake Chapala where the dust quit. I, I think I, I remember crying for my mama in that two or three mile section. There's not a lot of forms of racing no. where in two miles... You're crying for your mama. <laughs> I can't imagine that that's happening on uh, local racetracks here and there. That well, That is I, Baja distilled. I tell you, I, it, it it really makes a, you know, you, you start feeling like a boy in a man's world. <laughs> and uh, I imagine they're going, some of the guys over in Dakar, this during the Dakar race. The Dakar rally's going on right now, folks, so we've all been lured into the world of the Internet to watch that craziness. Are, are doing the same 
same thing. For yeah, there's some, there's some, some folks, there's some folks crying for their moms there. I would imagine. Yeah. You're absolutely right, Pete. They're out in the middle of the night. Their car's on its lid. It's getting cold. They don't have any hope of being rescued till the next day. Yeah, I mean, and a year's worth of effort has been wasted because they're out of the race now. Well, on that kind note, folks, <laughs> Pete Springer, <laughs> dang it, so good to see you. So pleasant to uh, to be here in your place and have you share a few of these Baja memories. I tell you, you, you tell these stories and it's it's like living them again. Uh, you know, as I get older, uh, they they're fading. Uh, like Mike asking me about the sleeping bags on the back of the motorcycle. I, I misplaced that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would bet you slept right there in the dirt. Yeah, just slept right there in the dirt, ate our can of peaches. Hadn't eaten anything all day. Hadn't been hungry because we've been riding. Uh, and and Mama Diaz's uh, turn egg omelets the next morning were the, were the best thing I ever ate. Turtle egg omelet. Turn. Oh, turn egg. Yes, the yes the bird, the turn. I yeah, was going to say. Yeah, they got they had an island out there nearby yeah. that was just covered in turns, and they'd they'd stop by in that island and pick up turn eggs, and that was a major uh, food source for them down there. And the and the eggs were pink instead of uh, instead of yellow. <laughs> wow. Turn, egg, omelet. You heard it here first, folks, on Slow Baja, where luck beats good every day. Pete Springer, thanks again, buddy. It's been a real delight. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for recording this, Mike. Uh, I, you do a great service for Baja with your stories. Well, I hope to get a lot more of them. All right, folks, thanks. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Pete Springer. He lived Baja at a very interesting time. I started traveling down there in 1960. And, uh, you know, anytime you can say you uh, you knew Mama Espinosa or you visited uh, Rancho Santa Inez or uh, were out in Bahia de Los Angeles uh, staying with Entero Diaz and his wife and eating a turn egg omelet probably the morning after you had a uh, sea turtle uh, roast, um, which, of course, things have changed. Times have changed. We don't eat those things anymore, and that's a good thing, but that was common, and Pete lived at a time when that was that was the style of the times, as they say. Uh, anyways, I'm glad he shared those stories, and I hope you enjoyed them. Uh, if you like what I'm doing, please support the show. I'm scrapping, scrimping, saving, trying to get uh, down for the Nora 1000. So um, you can drop a taco in the tank. You can go to slowbaja.com and pick up some merch. Sorry, size large shirts are still out of stock, but we got some extra larges. We got some double XLs. We got a triple XL in black. We've got a couple of smalls in white. Uh, and then, of course, we've got some hats in stock. So if you like what I'm doing, please uh, check it out at slowbaja.com and uh, support the show here and share it with a friend and I'll be back with something fun next week. 
Have I told you about my friend True Miller? You've probably heard the podcast, but let me tell you, her vineyard, Adobe Guadalupe Winery, is spectacular. From the breakfast at her communal table, bookended to an intimate dinner at night, their house-bred Azteca horses, Solomon the Horseman, will get you on a ride that'll just change your life. The food, the setting, the pool, it's all spectacular. AdobeGuadalupe.com. For appearing on Slow Baja today, our guests will receive the beautiful Benchmark Map 72-page Baja Road and Recreation Atlas. Do not go to Baja without this, folks. You never know when your GPS is going to crap out, and you're going to want a great map in your lap. Trust me.